We're coming to the closing words of this gospel, where our Lord Jesus Christ spoke some things to his disciples before he went to heaven. When we look at these parting words of Christ, they're found here in the Great Commission, verse 15 and 16. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. We made the point when we were looking at this portion last time that the Lord emphasizes here believing unto salvation. He's not saying that you need to be baptized to be saved. He's saying that those who are saved are then baptized. That's the scriptural order as I see it. But also, the emphasis is placed upon the necessity of believing. It doesn't say in verse 16, He that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. It says, He that believeth not shall be damned. Those are the operative words. Those are the words that we need to be thinking about in relation to this matter. The important thing that the Lord is emphasizing here is faith and trust in Christ. Those who do not trust in Christ are those who will be lost forever. This is the teaching of the Word of God. It's very clear from what is recorded here that that is in fact the case. Now, the Lord not only spoke here concerning the Great Commission in terms of the Gospel that was to be preached, but He also mentioned some things from verse 17. He talked about the signs that would follow them that believe. Now, He's speaking here particularly in relation to His disciples. These words have often been understood by some people to refer to that which really doesn't belong to them. There are folk who, especially in the charismatic movement, have sought to emphasize the words that are here uh, to support and to endorse their practices, such as speaking in tongues, casting out devils, having exorcism services, and even going as far as to take up snakes and have those snakes to be in a position where they could bite them so that they could fulfill the scripture here. And they would also go as far, some of them, as to drink some deadly thing deliberately so that they could fulfill the words of verse 18 and so on. Uh, there are some notable examples of foolish people who have gone so far as to appear on a stage at a service with a snake and they have been bitten by that snake and died. When we look at the New Testament, we see that in the book of Acts, all of these things were fulfilled. Indeed, they did speak with new languages. That's the thought. It's not some heavenly ecstatic language. Many people have gone to 1 Corinthians 14 
and have emphasized the unknown aspect. Well, an unknown language. Well, we have to understand that the word that's used in the original all the way through there is the word for language. It was not an unknown language on the earth. It just happened to be unknown in their circles. And I haven't got time today to expound that whole matter in relation to tongues, but I've preached on it a number of times before, and I can assure you that the tongues that are referred to there were actual known languages. There was the ability, as on the day of Pentecost, for men who had never previously learned a language to stand up and start preaching in that language. And not just in the language but in the dialect of the people. Because there's a word that's used in Acts chapter 2 in the original that has to do with that very thing. Dialectos. It has to do with the the accent. So that you would have people who would not only stand up and speak a particular language, I mean the apostles, Peter and so on, but they would actually speak that language in the accent of the people concerned which is a tremendous miracle. But then, as it speaks on further here, it talks about some other miraculous things that would happen. The Lord said these things, you will notice, to the original 11. If you go to Matthew chapter 28, there's no mention of any of these things. The Great Commission, strictly speaking, does not include this particular ability to speak in tongues, or to heal, or to conduct some of these spectacular miracles. The Great Commission has to do with preaching the Gospel. But there's no doubt when you come into the book of Acts, that was an introductory period in the New Testament church. It was foundational. And if you read the words of Paul in Ephesians, that is underscored. He talks about the fact that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and elders. This is Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The Lord gave various gifts to his church. But they were foundational. The foundational stage of the church, according to Ephesians 2 verse 20, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Whenever you're building a building, you don't just remain with the foundation, you build on that foundation. So there was a preparatory stage in the New Testament church where the Bible, the whole canon of Scripture, was not complete. There was a need for the ministry of the apostles to be authenticated by signs. And the apostle Paul refers to this in his own ministry in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Look carefully at this. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you, in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Signs of an apostle. Things that were done either directly by the apostles 
or under their jurisdiction, under their leadership. There are things that were done in that foundational stage that are no longer needed today. We don't need anything to authenticate the message because we have a completed Bible. But there's no doubt that in the days of the apostles, in the initial days in the book of Acts, they were able to do certain things that proved that they were who they said they were. That's why Paul said, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. He was able to prove that he was an apostle by the things that he did. Now, there's a book that was written some years ago by a pastor from Pennsylvania called Signs of the Apostles. His name is Walter Shantry. In that book, he has an appendix of the testimony of leading preachers, theologians and commentators in the history of the church. Men who believed that these gifts that are mentioned initially there in Mark 16 were no longer to be continued in the church to the end of time. In other words, these men were cessationists rather than continuationists. And I'm a cessationist. See, I believe that what Hebrews chapter 2 tells us is really vital on this matter. And what does it say? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? How was it confirmed? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. But notice the tense. It was confirmed unto us by God bearing them witness with signs and wonders and divers miracles. These things were no longer to continue after a certain point in church history. That is why, for example, when you read of Paul in one of his later epistles, in fact, this was the one that was written last, before he died, that's clear from Second Timothy chapter 4. Notice what he says at the end, or near the end of that chapter. 2 Timothy 4, verse 20. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. And the question is, why did Paul leave this man at Malta, or Miletus as it was called then, sick? Why did he not lay hands on him and heal him? Because you can already see that this kind of thing was disappearing from the church. It was no longer necessary to endorse the ministry by these outward signs and wonders. Some early writers, some early preachers, speaking about spiritual gifts, John Chrysostom said, This whole place is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. Augustine, he said, 
In the earliest time, the Holy Ghost fell upon them that believed, and they spake with tongues which they had not learned, as the Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the time, for there behooved to be that betokening of the Holy Spirit in all tongues, and to show that the gospel of God was to run through all tongues over the whole earth. That thing was done for a betokening, and it passed away. Thomas Watson, the Puritan in 1660, said, Sure, there is as much need of ordination now as in Christ's time and in the time of the apostles, there being then extraordinary gifts in the church which are now ceased. John Owen, same idea. Gifts which in their own nature exceed the whole power of all our faculties, that dispensation of the Spirit is long since ceased, and where it is now pretended unto by any, it may justly be suspected as an enthusiastic delusion. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, he said the same thing concerning the gift of tongues. These and other gifts of prophecy being a sign have long since ceased and been laid aside. Jonathan Edwards Speaking of the extraordinary gifts, they were given, he said, in order to the founding and establishing of the church in the world. But since the canon of the scripture has been completed and the Christian church fully founded and established, these extraordinary gifts have ceased. George Whitfield was a man who saw revival in his ministry, even in this part of the world. And yet George Whitfield said... I never did pretend to these extraordinary operations of working miracles or speaking with tongues. He said the charismata, the miraculous gifts conferred on the primitive church, have long since ceased. And no less a man than Charles Haddon Spurgeon testified in a number of his sermons to the same view. Spurgeon said the apostles were men who were selected as witnesses because they had personally seen the Saviour, an office which necessarily dies out, and properly so, because the miraculous power also is withdrawn. And then he said, although we may not expect and need not desire the miracles which came with the gift of the Holy Spirit, so far as they were physical, yet we may both desire and expect that which was intended and symbolized by them, and we may reckon to see the like spiritual wonders performed among us at this day. And that brings me very nicely into the text in Mark 16. Because though it does speak about these actual literal signs, we can say that the spiritual signs that follow the preaching of the word very much continue to today. The work of the Spirit has not ceased. But the idea that now men who had never spoken a language before could begin to speak that language does not square with experience. One of my fellow ministers back in Ulster, Dr. Douglas, was engaged one day by a charismatic who didn't like his views on these things. And Mr. Douglas challenged him when he said, Oh no, we should be speaking in tongues today in the church Mr. Douglas said, in the city of Belfast, in the dock, in the port of Belfast, there are ships from all over the world. They come from the Soviet Union at that time. They come from Russia. They come from all sorts of countries that do not speak English. 
Eastern Europe, South America, all over the world, they're all in that port. Dr. Douglas said, you come with me and I want you to preach to these people in their own language, the gospel. Would you be able to do it? Oh, he sort of hemmed and had. Well, you haven't got the Pentecostal gift. You say you're Pentecostal? What happened on the day of Pentecost? Where does the word Pentecostal come from? It comes from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, what happened that day? All those who were from these various backgrounds, Jewish, Jewish people and proselytes, they came together to worship at Jerusalem, and the Bible tells us where they were from. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. And what was said was, all these people, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Is there a Pentecostal preacher anywhere today who has the ability to go to a place and speak in the language of that community without having learned the language? I would say that there's not. Why? Because the apostolic gift of speaking in tongues is no longer with us. And it's so interesting to me that some of these charismatic preachers that want to talk about signs and wonders and miracles... They stand up in these meetings, healing meetings no less, and they're wearing spectacles. They're wearing glasses, and if they're not, they're wearing contacts. You know why? Because their eyesight is failing. Some of them have hearing aids. Some of them haven't got all their teeth. Although some will be able to say, my teeth are all my own, I bought them myself. And you feel like saying to these people, physician, heal thyself. You're telling me that healing is in the atonement? Okay, let's get healed from your bad eyesight, your poor hearing. And if you walk with a limp, you've got arthritis, heal yourself. Well, they'll they'll probably throw you out of the meeting. A fellow used to come to my church in Scotland, went along to one of these charismatic meetings. I didn't send him, by the way. He went there under his own steam. And it was one of these, you know, where you line up at the front and put their hand on your head and they all fall backwards. And they had catchers there. It's amazing that, isn't it? It's so spontaneous that they have catchers there waiting for you to fall. Well, my friend, they put their hand on his head and he didn't fall. He deliberately didn't fall. Then they did it again. They still didn't fall. So passing on quickly to the next person. What a farce all of this is. But it's so sad how people buy into this stuff. And they'll go to Mark chapter 16 and say, well, there it is, pastor. There it is. The Lord said that they would do all these things. That's right. If you go to the book of Acts, what do you find? Paul and others were on the island of Melita, Malta. Remember how they built the fire? Remember what came out of the fire? A viper. Remember how it grasped onto Paul and first of all, they said, well, He's being punished for his sins. But then when it bit him and he didn't fall down dead, they changed their tune and said, no, these men are gods. We'll begin to worship them. They're special people. The Lord said they shall take up serpents. 
They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. There were those that even when the apostles walked by, the shadow of them was sufficient for them to be healed. You'll see people on charlatans on your television screen if you're foolish enough to watch those programs offering you little bottles of oil and holy handkerchiefs. And uh, they'll come to you for a very nice little donation. If you want to send that to them, you'll have this blessed cloth. This stuff is farcical. But it's not only that, it's dangerous. Because with people who buy into this stuff, who will not take even just the plain meaning of Scripture in regard to other things. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I want to come to the parting words of the Gospel that followed these words about the miraculous gifts. It says in verse 19 and 20, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Now, you can tie that in with verse 17. Of course you can. These signs shall follow them that believe. Confirming the word with signs following. When the apostles went out to preach, indeed they did see these miraculous things taking place in the foundational period of the church. But the ascension of Christ that's mentioned here, and a summary of apostolic ministry when Christ had gone to heaven, is what I want to focus upon in the remainder of our message. These three great things that are suggested by the closing words of Mark chapter 16 are what I want to focus upon in the sermon. Look at what it says in verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. The first thing we think of here is the glorious place that's mentioned. He was received up into heaven. It's an elementary point, but there is such a place as heaven. There is such a place. You can go outside and look up into the sky and you will not see heaven. Oh, you'll see the heavens, the atmosphere, you'll see even beyond our immediate atmosphere of our planet up into space where it's filled with stars. And you can take a very powerful telescope and you'll see things that you could never see with the naked eye and you can wonder at God's creation. But you still won't see heaven. What Paul referred to in his experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as the third heaven. See, there's the immediate atmosphere, then there's space, then there's the third heaven. And the third heaven is what the Bible refers to as paradise. But you'll see this that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse number 2. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body 
I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. So there's the first thing we learn about the third heaven. It's up. It's not down, it's up. The Bible speaks of hell beneath, and it speaks of heaven above. So here's an elementary point again, but it's clear, caught up to the third heaven. Again, verse 4 says, how he was caught up into paradise. So paradise and the third heaven are the same place. And when Jesus was on the cross, speaking to the dying thief, when he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom, the Lord Jesus answered, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Where was Jesus going? He was going to heaven. Paradise. The third heaven. Many, many years ago, the Russians sent one of their Sputnik crafts into space. And the cosmonauts, as they were called, when they returned to earth, being the atheists that they are, the godless people that they are, they said they were up there and they saw no evidence whatsoever of a place called heaven. Well, so what? You think the Lord was going to allow men to go up on a spacecraft and go to heaven? Or to see heaven? Just because they didn't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The Word of God says that the Lord Jesus Christ was caught up. He was received up into heaven. And I like that. He was received into heaven. It was as though there was a welcoming party there for Christ. Imagine the angels of God all receiving the Christ of God back up into heaven. If you want to see a companion scripture to Mark 16, it's Acts chapter 1. And in that great portion, it speaks of the same event. In the book of Acts chapter 1, the Lord was assembled with his disciples He was on the mount with them. He gave them that promise that they would receive power after the Holy Ghost was come upon them and they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now look at verse 9 of Acts 1. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, there it is again, up the way, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly, Toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. wonder were they the same two angels that were at the tomb. Which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Isn't it clear? He's gone to that glorious place. So it's very clear when Jesus ascended where he went. He went up. He went into heaven. He went to the right hand of God. That's what Mark 16 tells us. He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. The right hand of God is the hand of power. And as interesting is it not that when Stephen 
was stoned to death. We read in Acts chapter 7 that whenever they were stoning him to death, verse 55 of Acts 7, it tells us he being full of the Holy Ghost looked up steadfastly into heaven. The Lord gave him that vision of glory itself. He looked up steadfastly into heaven, that glorious place, and saw the glory of God and Jesus, notice, not sitting, but standing. Jesus standing on the right hand of God. There are commentators who believe that the Lord Jesus, sitting on the right hand of God, stood up in recognition of his dying servant. You know, whenever someone comes into the room that you're supposed to have respect for, you stand up. Apparently that happens in the White House as well with the uh, second in charge. But anyway, I remember when I was in the theological hall, when our professors would come in of a morning to teach us, we all stood to our feet until we were told to sit down. It's a mark of respect. This is the only place that you'll find in the New Testament where Jesus is on the right hand of God, but he's standing, not sitting. That's a remarkable thing. But where is he? He's on the right hand of God. And when you go to Hebrews chapter 1, it speaks of our Savior's death for us. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, And verse 2, that God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. He's the Creator, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, that's the cross, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We see this again in Hebrews 10. And verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That's where he went. He went to the right hand of God. And Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, speaks of the same thing. From verse 50. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. He was carried up into heaven. That's where he went. That's where Jesus is. In his bodily form, that same Jesus who suffered on the cross is now risen He has ascended. He is at the right hand of God in that glorious place. But I want you to notice as well, not only where he went, but why he went. Why does it say this? That when the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. He went to the right hand of God because his work of atonement was completed. His work on this earth was done. And let me just make a comment here. I believe it was John Wesley who once said that a man, that is a Christian man, is immortal 
until his work for God is done. You're not going to be going to heaven one moment before you're supposed to, because the Lord has a work for you to do. And as long as the Lord leaves you on this earth, life is worth living. Don't ever let the devil tell you that it's no longer worth being on this earth. You might get old and frail and infirm and not be able to move and have other people care for you and look after you. But as long as you're on this earth and you've got a breath in your body and you can pray to God, God has a work for you to do. Even if it's just just prayer. Remember what Jesus said in this great prayer in John 17. He is anticipating the cross. He hasn't gone to the cross yet, but he's anticipating it. In fact, he's looking beyond the cross. Because when he prayed, John 17 and verse 4, he said something really significant. I have glorified thee on the earth. Well, see, he's still on the earth when he's praying this. Because the next chapter says, verse 1 of chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his, his disciples over the brook Kidron. So the Lord is on the earth, but he's anticipating heaven. He's anticipating his death, resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his high priestly work. That's why we call it the high priestly prayer of Christ. Because he's praying as if he was already in glory. Notice what it says in verse 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I have finished the work. And so that's why he went into heaven to the right hand of God. Because the work of atonement was completed. He went back to the Father from whom he had come. Just go to the previous chapter. John 16 verse 28. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. That's where he went. Why he went? Because his work of atonement was complete. And we can say that this morning. The glorious truth of the gospel is the work of Christ is finished. It doesn't need anything added to it. It doesn't need your puny works or mine added to it. You can't take anything from it. The work of Christ is complete. Redemption has been accomplished. It is finished. And that's all that we're asked to believe in. To trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. False religion says, do this, do that, do the other thing in order to be saved. True religion says, it's done. It's already been done by Christ. And we trust in that for our salvation. There's the glorious place. Where he went, why he went. Let's think about what he went to do. What did he go to the right hand of God to do? Hebrews 7 verse 25 gives us the answer to that. Because we are told there, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, saying he ever liveth to make intercession for them. This is what he went to do. Chapter 9 of Hebrews. It tells us there in verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood 
he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And he's gone there, verse 24 says, not into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but here it is again, into heaven itself. Hebrews 9.24, into heaven itself. What to do? Now to appear in the presence of God for us. There's a man in the glory who pleads my cause before the Father's face. That's a thought that should encourage and bless your heart. There's a glorious place where Christ ever lives to intercede for his people. But as well as the glorious place, Mark 16 reminds us of the gracious presence. See what it says in verse 20? And they went forth. The Lord told them in verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. So verse 20 says, And they went forth and preached everywhere. In other words, they obeyed the word of Christ. But then it says this, The Lord working with them. We've just said that the Lord was in heaven. That is in glory. That is at the right hand of the Father. And yet we find out in verse 20 that he's with them. He's with them. And Matthew chapter 28 will concur with that. Because there in that great statement of the Great Commission, the Lord told them, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, Matthew 28, 19, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The Lord is with us. He's with His church. You go to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Where is the Son of Man? He's walking in the midst of the candlesticks. The churches. He's in the midst of the churches. He's present with us. According to His own promise, Matthew 18.20, where two or three are gathered together in My name, there am I in the midst of them. Tremendous thought this of the gracious presence of Christ. Yes, He is in heaven. And yet He is with them. They were not alone. And the great thought for us today is that we are not alone. It might seem at times that we're on our own. There's not too many with us. But the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. We recall those wonderful words of promise that He gave to the disciples earlier on in John 14. Remember when he talked about the Holy Spirit who is the vicar of Christ. The Pope is not the vicar of Christ. The word vicar meaning a representative. You talk about somebody being the vicarious presence. The Holy Spirit is the vicar of Christ. And John chapter 14 makes that clear from verse 16. 
Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, Parakletos, one who pleads for you, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. Ye know him. For he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, if you look carefully at that, in the margin of your authorized version, if you have a margin in your Bible, you'll see that beside that word comfortless, there's an alternate rendering, which is orphans. I love this. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. When we see little ones left without parents, if you've ever been to an orphanage, it can be quite pathetic. It can be a very sad experience. And sometimes kids that have been in an orphanage have had a very sad experience having had to live there instead of being in a proper home. I'm not saying that all orphanages are bad. Of course they're not. But some of them are not good. And there's no way that children can have the same level of care and love in a broad sense like that when there's a whole bunch of orphans that they could have in a single individual home with parents. We look at orphans and we often feel sorry for them. Little orphans left without their parents. The Lord Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to come to you. I'll be present with you. What a tremendous thought that is. That they were not alone. And we are not alone. The Lord is with us. There's consolation here. Bishop Ryle said, for all true Christians. They live in an evil world. They're often careful and troubled about many things and are sorely cast down by their own weakness and infirmities. They live in a dying world. They feel their bodies gradually failing and giving way. They have before them the awful prospect of soon launching forth into a world unknown. What shall then comfort them? They must lean back on the thought of their Savior in heaven, never slumbering, never sleeping, and always ready to help. The Lord Jesus is with us. Now the disciples went forth and preached as the Lord had called them to do. But they had the gracious presence of the Lord with them. Remember how Paul was mourning toward the end of his ministry about the lack of support that he got from many of the Lord's people, even his own colleagues in ministry. Here's what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. He went on to say, verse 16, At my first answer, no man stood with me, 
but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. This was a fulfillment of the Lord's own word in Paul's experience. The Lord working with them. So there's the glorious place spoken of. There's the gracious presence spoken of. But more than this, in our text there's the great prosperity spoken of. There are really two things that are emphasized here. The Lord working with them and the Lord giving confirmation to their work. The Lord working with them and at the same time giving His stamp of approval and His confirmation to their work. The great prosperity. And if this was true of the apostles and it was, It's true in the experience of the church in every age, including today. Even when things are hard, even when things are difficult, even when it seems like there's very little headway being made. Listen, we are sure of companionship in the work. They went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. They were yoked in service with Him. As we are. Notice the words of Paul to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He spoke about those who labor. Some water. Some plant. God gives the increase. But in it all, here's the great comfort. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse number 9. For We are laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry. You're God's building. So when you're serving, you're not serving alone. You're a laborer together with God. You speak to somebody about the Lord. The Lord is working with you. When you preach the Word, the Lord is accompanying the preaching with His Spirit. We are yoked in service with Him. He's always near. There's companionship in the work. But there's also confirmation of the Word. Look at verse 20. And confirming the Word with signs following. I've been in many a prayer meeting where I've heard men pray, Lord, give signs to follow the preaching of the Word. And I know what men mean when they pray that. They're not talking about the charismatic gifts. They're talking about people getting converted. They're talking about people being saved. They're talking about lives being changed. About hearts and lives and homes being rearranged. See, we know from the Acts of the Apostles and from the pages of church history since, the manner in which these words have been proved to be true. You look at days of revival, days when God visited His church. It was a fulfillment of this text. They went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the Word with signs following. I know I've mentioned this a number of times before, but being from Northern Ireland where there was a great revival in 1959, 
Such was the move of the Spirit at that time that new church buildings were built everywhere across the province to accommodate the new converts. So you can go around the country and go to the front of churches and you'll see little markers above the door. 1859, 1860. Because that's when God moved in power and the churches were so filled with people that they had to build new churches to accommodate the converts. In spite of every effort of the devil, the word of truth is not preached in vain. And even in times when there's not revival and By the very nature of it, revival can't continue all the time. I I read things and I hear things about that that are actually nonsense. Such as the church should be living in revival all the time. That's nonsense. Revival by its very nature, by its very definition, is an extraordinary work of God. It's something that's out of the ordinary. When God comes in mighty power and visits his church in a way that he normally doesn't, But even in the ordinary times, if I could call it that, the word of truth is not preached in vain. Believers from time to time are gathered out of the world. Churches are founded every so often. In city after city and country after country, new ministries are begun. Old ministries are revived. The small acorn of Christianity grows into a great oak tree. And the Lord here speaks of his working with his church. Remember this, men and women, the good seed when it's sown is not just thrown away. Sooner or later there will be signs following the preaching of the word. There's no doubt that these things are written for our encouragement. They're written for our encouragement. We should believe that no one will ever work faithfully for Christ and find at the last that his work has been altogether in vain. We need to labor on patiently, each one in our own position. Everybody can't occupy the pulpit, but you can have a place of service. And God will use you. You might be very down on yourself. That's not a bad thing, I guess. The Bible says before honor is humility. Far better you'd be down on yourself than thinking, boy, what a, good, what a good boy am I. Remember that little boy put his thumb into the pie and brought out the piece of fruit. What a good boy am I. The Lord doesn't want us to be like that in service. But we are to preach and teach and speak and write and warn and testify and rest assured that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. I met one of my Sunday school teachers, a godly man, faithful teacher he was, one day when I was back home and he had just been pumping gas at the gas station and he met me in this service area and he had tears in his eyes. He said, Stephen, I just met a fellow there when I was pumping the gas and he told me, he remembered me teaching him in Sunday school years and years ago and he testified that it wasn't it was not least his faithful teaching that brought him to Christ what an encouragement what an encouragement 
the Lord confirming the word with signs following. Do we not want to see more of that? Yes, of course we do. Of course we'd like to see more. But that's up to God, isn't it? God gives the increase. We don't. But I know that as I read my Bible, the Lord gave the increase over and over and over again. I know when I read my church history books, God gave the increase over and over and over again. Think of Acts chapter 11, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. That's what Mark 16 tells us, isn't it? The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. And just as He blessed their efforts, He will bless our efforts as well. A scripture that always has meant a lot to me, and continues to mean a lot to me in ministry, is Isaiah chapter 55. And there's some wonderful scriptures in there. But one in particular that really blesses me is Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, which means empty, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. It is not a waste of time to give out the word. It's not a waste of time to pray for people. It's not a waste of time to write a note with the gospel in it, or to send somebody a gospel tract. It's not a waste of time. For God's word will not return unto him void. And again, with a New Testament equivalent to that promise, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I know the devil tells you that it is in vain. The devil tells you that it's a waste of time, that nothing ever happens and nothing ever will happen. But the devil is a liar. God's word is true. So press on. Press on. Preach on. Pray on. Labor on. And the Lord will give the increase. May he do so for his own glory. Amen.